October 24, 2012, get a knock on the door, 6 o'clock in the morning, 40, 50 law enforcement outside, shining flashlights. I open the front door, you know, they put me up against the wall, the alarm starts going off, uh, my wife is confused, and they just said, you know, they don't really say anything, you know, they say, you know, you're under arrest, uh, you know, and then I'm like, what's the charge? They go, you know, they didn't even tell me what the charge was, it was pretty crazy. This is Spanky. He's a professional sports better, which is to say that for a number of men in America, he is living their dream. But on this October morning, the dream must have seemed like a nightmare. And and, and then I, I later found out that it was bookmaking and gambling and enterprise corruption, all this stuff. I, I had no clue. Never been arrested before. You know, it was just nuts. I, I couldn't believe it. They searched through my whole house. FBI, DEA, local police, NYPD, everybody, you know what I mean? Like, I'm talking, holy, like, uh, like you would think that I, that, that, that I, I killed somebody. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is Made in America, Part 1. A basic reality of our criminal justice system is that the imbalance of power between defendants and the government is so great that if the government makes an error or arrests the wrong person out of confusion... It can be a mistake the defendant never recovers from. More than once, prosecutors have looked at high-volume professional sports bettors and mistaken them for illegal bookies. That was Spanky's exact situation in October of 2012. We're going to hear more about this ordeal in part two because it doesn't end like you might be thinking. But if the outcome is unexpected, the beginning of the story is even more surprising. It all started in a college computer programming class. It's amazing because, you know, in my junior year of college, I took a class at Rutgers called Internet Technologies. Internet Technologies, one of the projects in the class, was essentially to download an uh, uh, the source code of an HTML web page. So you download the HTML source code, and um, essentially you parse the code. And, you know, might have been a stock, like let's just say Yahoo had all these stock prices. So you kind of would just continuously download this code and kind of like have like a live ticker type thing. So then, you know, my wheels started turning. I'm like, hmm, wait a minute. You know, what if I did this for like 25 different sports books to be able to alert me to different price discrepancies? And, um, and that's what I did. The, the crux of that code that I wrote back in 99 is still used today. Of course, the HTML pages have changed and everything, but the logic on comparing the numbers and looking for discrepancies, that code is still used today. Like I have you know, dot Java files that haven't been edited since 2000. The inspiration to compare odds from numerous sources came from a book that Spanky often cites as being influential to his career. So the big moment, again, was this book I read by Jack Moore called The Complete Book of Sports Betting. It was published in 96, and uh, essentially it, it kind of like inverted everything. Instead of handicapping games and making your own numbers – which is the what I call the bottom-up approach, essentially it just says, why don't you just compare the different lines at the sports book 
uh, uh, different sports books and look for uh, the, the the outlier. Look for the guy that has the different lines. So if everybody's painted five and you have one six and a half, you know what? Plus six and a half is, is going to be the play. He calls it the blindfold method. Um, and there's different criteria, et cetera, et cetera. But the gist of it is, is to try to find an outlier line. And once I read that book and I started writing that code, because again, I was a sucker just like everybody else. I thought, I, you know, watching, watching so much sports and, you know, knowing the players on the teams was going to lead me, you know, to the promised land. But, you know, it would have led me to the poorhouse if I stuck it out that way. Jack Moore's book would talk about calling 900 lines. This was in 96, kind of like the advent of the internet. So we'd talk about calling 900 lines and kind of getting like different lines from all over Vegas and all this stuff. It was kind of outdated, but the gist of it, the crux of it, of him telling you, look at the different line sets, that's what kind of, you know, stuck with me. And it's what I use today. It's, it's again, it's, it's not rocket science. It's not really a secret sauce. It's, you just look for the offline and bet the offline because by betting the offline, you'll probably beat the closing line and you'll make money. Spanky has a unique resume to do what he does. After college, he was working on Wall Street for Deutsche Bank, and he was programming the infrastructure that supports the market. So at Deutsche, I was working for the prime brokerage division, you know, essentially processing trades, writing a lot of the code to be able to process trades from all these big hedge funds that were clients. Um, Renaissance Technologies was the biggest one we've had. I think one of them was called Trout. I, f- I forget the several names, but I remember Rentech. That was the code. Rentech, which is Renaissance Technologies, and they always had the most volume. And I was essentially kind of like the liaison, the coder um, between the sales team and the tech team because um, I had a kind of a unique experience. I had a finance computer science degree, and, um, and it was great. You know, I learned a lot, and I kind of saw how the financial world worked. It was just, it was a really, really great time. I was able to, you know, hone my Perl skills, my Java skills. Everything was written in Java and Perl, so um, mostly Java then. Um, and, and it was just, just a, a great time. Um, I really, uh, it's invaluable to be able to, to work in that environment. Renaissance Technologies is the most successful hedge fund the world has ever known. I've heard it said that a dollar invested in the Renaissance Medallion Fund at inception would be worth $400 million today. But this provides something of a stark contrast. Spanky spent his short career in finance working on the system to make it easier for Rentech to trade. But in sports markets, the attitude towards winners is just the opposite. Wall Street celebrates winners. In gambling, winners get the boot. Before Spanky had to worry about the challenges of success, he had a more pressing issue to deal with. So I was engaged to my now wife, so my fiance at the time, and I told her, I, I remember telling her, listen, I think I'm thinking about uh, quitting my job and, uh, and betting full time. And, you know, she was really nervous about it. I told my mom about it, my brother. My mom got so nervous, so she wound up calling my mother, my future mother-in-law, to talk to my wife, she started, or my fiance, they, everyone kind of like ganged up on me saying, are you nuts? You know, you went to school, you're making six figures, um, you got a great education, and now all of a sudden you're going to go gamble for a living? Everyone was like, oh, you know, it, just, it was just nuts. The, the, the negative connotation of gambling, the stereotype that's with it, the taboo that comes with being a pro gambler was just so much, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more widely accepted today, although I'm sure there will be still some pushback, but back then it was just, you know, I don't know, in the early 2000s, it was, are you nuts? 
you know, it, it was tough. I got a lot of pushback. My, my fiance ultimately said she'll support me no matter what decision I make. But, you know, everyone kind of, you know, kept telling me, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? You know, I'm a very risk averse person. And I kind of, you know, explained to them that I was making more money on the weekends doing this on the side than I was on my regular job. So this is not just a, you know, a whim here. Um, I'm battle tested. I kind of know what's up. And um, I think that kind of got everybody to calm down a little bit. But they still, you know, up until about maybe eight, nine years ago, my mother was still, you know, was embarrassed to tell people that her son, you know, bets sports or, or is a professional gambler. She, I don't, I don't even know if to, to this day she'll even like advertise that. It's just one of those things in which, you know, uh, sorry, you know, my mom will sometimes just say, yeah, he works at a bank or something. You know, there's embarrassment, uh, kind of. It's still a little bit of a, you know, what? Is he nuts? Is he degenerate? Stuff like that. Our next guest is Captain Jack Andrews, who is not an actual captain, but is an actual professional gambler. He's from New Jersey, so he was always familiar with Atlantic City. But he says that a trip to the Bellagio was the thing that set the hook. We throw our money down and we start to play. And I look down the table and at the other end of the table is Mercury Morris, Joe Theismann, Don Shula. All are playing craps at this table in the center of the Bellagio. I learned out later there was a, you know, some kind of golf tournament in town, some NFL alumni golf tournament. But we ended up playing craps there for like 10, 15 minutes with you know, these NFL greats. And I'm like, how does this happen? Like, how do you just walk into the door and you're, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with these people? And this is, this is just amazing. And that's when I sort of fell in love with that whole casino vibe and the Vegas vibe. I have to give Jack credit here because if Mercury Morris stood next to me in a Dolphins jersey that said Morris on the back and popped a bottle of champagne as Mercury Morris does, I would still need to Google to make sure it was him. Anyway, Jack's encounter at the craps table set him down the path to becoming a professional. And so I came back from that trip and I decided, okay, I'm going to have my system for beating craps. And I put together this, you know, kind of like a martingale system with the free odds and whatnot. It had no, it had no mathematical basis. It was just me thinking that I could outwit the casino. Luckily, I had found a craps simulator online and I, I programmed in my, my strategy and, and ran it. 100,000 times through the simulator and found that <laughs> it sucked. It, it was an ultimate loser. But that led me down the path of, well, then what games are beatable in a casino? So I looked around and I discovered card counting. And I read you know a couple book reviews and they said Million Dollar Blackjack by Ken Houston. That's a great book for getting started. So I went and got that book. Uh, so I started to get into card counting. I signed up for BJ21 online and that just sort of took off. Now, when I say that took off, that was, I'd say, six months after I had visited Vegas there for the first time. I would go on from there and I would get together, you know, two, three hundred dollars. and I'd go back down to Atlantic City and I'd try to play the six deck game at the AC Hilton because that had a 10 or a 15 dollar uh, minimum bet back then. And I would just, you know, I'd plow through the 200, 300 and I'd lose and I'd, you know, maybe get a free buffet or lunch or dinner or whatever. And I'd go back home and kind of start over. And that was, and so from that point forward, it was sort of like, I kept wanting to learn, well, what, what's the next step here? What's, what's the next best thing in card counting? And I would, you know, read about all these different ways to 
to beat blackjack and I, you know, discover some hole carding information there. And I was like, well, maybe I could try that, but I could never see, I could never find a, a dealer flashing back then. And it like was constantly an evolution of me just saying, well, what else is there? What else is there? And I think that's led me the rest of my path as an AP is I'm always needing to evolve because whatever you're doing will eventually dry up. Card counting eventually dried up for me. Uh, you know, I got people, you know, I, I definitely in Atlantic City, I couldn't play anymore because I'd walk into the casino and, you know, these they'd have these counter catchers and they knew my face, you know, and I'm, at the time I'm betting $15 to $90 on the four deck game at the Sands and they're still hassling me and shuffling up on me and things like that. So card counting was not going to be the way I was going to make a lot of money. Captain Jack built his bankroll during a time that has been described as a gold rush for advantage players. The internet casinos of the early 2000s paid out so much money in sign-up and deposit bonuses that APs sat in front of their computers and won more money than they'd ever made in brick-and-mortar casinos. And that led me to, eventually, internet casinos. Uh, And that's how sort of my job kind of played into this, is I worked in IT for a large law firm, and it was my job to be big brother. Uh, In other words, like they had these filters in place for the web usage. You can't go to these certain sites. At at one time, I think we were blocking uh, Facebook even, you know, there was, so it was, we just didn't want employees to be wasting time doing social things on, on the internet. But I was above that. I was the kind of the gatekeeper. So I could go to these internet casinos on our great internet bandwidth and play all day. And I was doing that on the side. I was, you know, I'd have uh, open in the background. I'd be going through these various casino bonuses while I'm at work. And, uh, you know, there were some days where I made tens of thousands of dollars while employed at this law firm. Um, And there were other days where I lost tens of thousands of dollars while doing my day job. But the point there was that I would constantly just keep on evolving. And internet casinos gave way to sports betting because online sports betting was kind of your natural progression. And now we're in about 2005 or six or seven around there. And um, I was starting to do more and more sports betting because the internet casinos started to dry up after the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act was passed in 2006. And so I started to just do sports betting uh, exclusively for a while. Uh, and then I went back to doing just land-based casinos for a while, and then back to sports betting again. And it wasn't until, I'd say, 2011 or so when I saw that New Jersey was about was trying to legalize sports betting that there's an opportunity there that if, if, if this gets to be really big, this would be where I want to kind of uh, make my mark. I, I, I think I can scale it up large in sports betting. I don't have as, as as strong a math background as a lot of other APs. I don't have as strong a, a drive to make the money and do the travel and the grind and the hours. I have a drive to always be trying to find the next thing and, and figure that out before the rest of the world. Eventually, Jack had enough ways to make money that he realized he could do it full time. So when I decided to go full time, I was I had just gotten married. And I was working in Newark, New Jersey, but living in South Jersey. And I basically had a two-hour commute each way to and from work. And then I had a job that was um, basically a 24-7 job. You know, the phone would ring at 4 a.m. and I'd have to jump in the car and drive to Newark. And it just got to be too much, especially since I was now married and, and it wasn't just my time that I was piddling away on New Jersey transit. So... 
I knew I had to get out of there. And this seemed like a viable alternative. I, I, I figured I always had enough different plays that I could pull off or travel to pull off. And it sort of led me to the point where I said, okay, I can make this jump. I can do this. And the best advice I ever got on when, when it is time to go pro is, is you'll know it and you're coming up with more excuses as to why you shouldn't go pro than why you should. And I was at that point. I was, I was to the point where I was coming up with these excuses as to why I shouldn't do it. And none of them really held water. And uh, every other professional AP that I talked to was like, yeah, we don't know why you haven't gone full time yet, Jack. And uh, that's when I said, okay, I, I think it's time. Ray Marino is the head of trading at bookmaker.eu which is an offshore sports book with offices in Costa Rica. But before he was on the bookmaking side, Ray was a sharp better. And before he had any kind of advantage, he was, shall we say, a gambling enthusiast. I had a passion for gambling ever since I was you know, seven or eight years old, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I was in high school uh, sneaking $11 bets with the assistant coach of my high school basketball team. He was getting down for me. Uh, Actually, Bobby Thompson, It's a he was an ex-Tulane basketball player that was actually involved in that whole uh, Tulane basketball scandal back in the late 80s. Um, and he was actually getting down bets for me and $11 bets here, $20 bets there. And I had a, you know, I had a thirst for it from the beginning. You know, I found out the hard way it wasn't easy, that's for sure. Ray got his gambling education in Louisiana pool halls. We'd start getting up poker games in the back of the pool hall, basically, and uh, that's kind of where it all began. We'd have a cab driver that would come in every night and basically blow his his cab his cab money that the money he made that day. He'd blow it in there religiously, and you know he had a couple of smart, savvy guys in there, and he had a lot of young guys like myself that were just looking to gamble. And um, that was definitely the first time I had a true edge in any form of gambling was playing in the back of the, uh, the pool hall in those poker games. Uh, and that's where I saw, you know, that there is a way to make money at this if you just pick your spots, if you will, and learn learn what you can do, what you can do and which, you, you know, your capabilities, if you will, you know, uh, what where I've got an advantage, you know, and I certainly had an advantage there. Ray was also driving a cab as he figured things out. He liked playing pool, but he wasn't one of the best players. But he could win at poker, and he learned to hustle slot machines in the Gulf Coast casinos. In New Orleans, driving a cab kind of was a great job if you wanted to be a gambler because you could just gamble, gamble, gamble. And if you had a bad run and went broke, you just take the cab and push it and build your bankroll back up and get back into the game, basically. So that's kind of what I did for a while. And then it got to the point where... I was gaining more and more an advantage with the gambling and it was, it was, uh, I was doing more gambling and less cabin, if you will, paying rent. I still had to pay the rent on the cab, but, um, I was definitely doing more gambling and, um, I still was, I was still playing with a two to seven thousand dollar bankroll at this time. That's all I, you know, that's all I really had at the time and, um, just grinding enough to pay my bills and whatnot. And, uh, playing one of these slot machines and at the Beau Rivage. I uh, actually was playing a slot machine. I probably had no business playing because it was a $5 machine. I had a bad poker session. My nose was bleeding a little bit. So I started walking around looking for some slots and I found a $5 slot that was theoretically a profitable play. So I stuck a couple hundred dollars in there and uh, hit, a, hit a jackpot for 43000 so that's what uh, that's what got me to Vegas. Actually, that's that was what I used to make the move to Vegas. Um, 
and with with the guy that I was playing the slots with, he he came out there with me and uh, played poker and uh, hustled slot machines for a little while. And I uh, met another guy in the poker rooms, guy that's hundred times smarter than me and uh he had a passion for the sports gambling as well and we were just bullshit in the poker rooms you know just grinding out games at night and then one day he says you know i've built these databases for the nba and um i'm pretty sure i can crush these nba quarter lines he goes to, and he asked me if i had any accounts that i was playing on i said yeah i got two accounts you know um i said look i'll just give them to you and uh i'll take uh i'll take 20 20 percent of of all the action or whatever you know uh no free roll just you know just gambling with them you know uh and the quarters were really good at the time but not as good as the percentage we were hitting at i mean with this thing he just caught fire we were hitting 70 70 percent of these things for a while you know i'm watching this and i'm and all i could think to myself is man this is what i want to do this is this is the guy i want to find a way to, <laughs> to hook up with and really take the sports gamble to the next level he obviously is far and away ahead of any of my knowledge on this stuff you know i understood how strong the three was how strong the seven was in football but you know it, it that you know numbers were important but that's about that's about the extent of my knowledge you know um and uh and a few days later you know he yeah he said you look i'm about to go full steam with this uh with the sports gambling are you interested in being a partner and he didn't have to say anything else so it was it was him another guy and myself that uh that decided to just drop everything and take on sports full blast I come from a humble background and, um, you know, I had aspirations of making a thousand a week at some point, 1500 a week, you know, and, um, it didn't take long with what we were doing. We was, you know, we would start having these 18, $20,000 days and I'm, I'm laying in bed and I'm pinching myself, you know, is this really happened? Am I really making money, making really good money doing something that I absolutely love to do? Can it, can this really be real? And it, it certainly gave me the incentive to, yeah, to keep at it, learn more, work harder. Over time, Ray and his partners had to deal with the problems caused by success. Their start had come making bets where they had a big edge, but could only get down a limited amount of money. But their bankroll grew so fast that they were able to target more liquid markets. Eventually, they were looking around to see what could be next. But then, as you know, uh, the U.S. isn't... Uh super gambling friendly um as a whole there's a lot of gray areas in it and um we had run into a couple small issues and it was getting it was getting old and we were looking for new opportunity and we had developed a really good relationship with the ceo a bookmaker and uh you know he'd help us do this we'd help him do that whatever and he knew that we were kind of interested in venturing out into something else and he asked us to come check his place out and see if we'd be interested in uh, helping him make money and stop trying to take his money is basically how it started. Um, I was the one person, I think, in the team that was really against this idea. I thought this was crazy. I mean, not that I consider him the enemy because we never did really consider him the enemy, but we certainly consider him the competition. And um, I said, we're really going to share all our knowledge with one of the places that we beat out of the most money, you know, I said, um, what if this doesn't work? Then what? You know, I, I was very skeptical. And uh, the guy that runs the show, he's, he convinced me otherwise. And he's certainly a ton smarter than me. And uh, he said, look, I've looked at the number. We can make this really work. He goes, this is, this is the opportunity we've been looking for. You know, I said, okay. You know, so uh, we walked up and down the bookmaker building. And from there, we started trying to make it a better place. That was our next, our next uh, 
venture in, in the gambling world, if you will. Gambling offers an interesting glimpse into the way the human mind works and what motivates people. In some sense, there is no closer connection between action and payoff than you find in gambling, except that gamblers often have surprising attitudes towards money. Beating something that was unbeatable, that wasn't supposed to be beatable, kind of beating the house. So, you know, you're not supposed to win betting sports. The house has an edge. I was always fascinated by that, just like with blackjack, with any form of advantage play. It it always just fascinated me how I could turn that house edge bring it over that net, that zero point and then bring it into the positive in my favor. And that was the big thing. It was the challenge. I didn't do it for the money. I didn't even think about the money. Uh, when I started doing this, I, I didn't pull any money out until years after. So I, I just kept money rolling in. I was posted up everywhere. I didn't realize any profits for years. I just wanted to beat the game. I, of course, I wanted to make money, but I wanted to beat the game and I felt as if I did a good job and if I if I loved it, um, the money would eventually come. And it, it definitely did. But you got to love what you do, obviously, and then the money will come. Spanky's drive to beat the game made me think of something Captain Jack told me. Earlier in his career, Jack experimented with beating craps through dice control. And he knew other APs that also tried to beat craps. There's a sports better, Frank B., longtime AP. And he was the first guy that I ever saw or met or heard of. And the person that referred him to me said, this is Frank. He has a license to print money. And it was true. Frank could do it all. Frank could, you know, beat cards. He could beat promos. He could beat contests. He could beat sports. Um, He's just a super smart guy. And in a lot of ways, he had a, he did have a license to print money. And, and that was sort of the first time I, I looked at that and I said, you know, he's always ahead of the curve. Um, I was getting into dice setting and this was well before Wong's book. And uh, I went out to Vegas and I went over Frank's house and Frank had a full craps table that he had purchased from a casino in his living room. There was nothing in his living room but this 12-foot craps table. And he was he was researching dice setting as well, and he was doing whatever he could to figure out if he could get an edge. And And he actually went further, a lot further with that than I did down the line. But uh, I'd say Frank was a mentor. I think of advantage gamblers as the type of people that if you put a puzzle in front of them and tell them that it's been proven the puzzle can't be solved, the first thing they'll do is pick it up and start working on it. My theory is that there are a few reasons they can't resist. One is just natural curiosity. The other is that they've learned that to solve an unsolvable problem, sometimes you just need to challenge the underlying assumptions. Spanky has made a business of challenging the assumption that everyone betting on sports has the same information. There was a time before Twitter, before anything, where we would call you know, school athletic departments um, and we would pose as the school newspaper. You know, there were times in which we've actually, you know, I've had the head coach of teams on the phone um, asking how practice went today and, and if somebody's expected to play or not. There were times in which we would call the school newspaper and pose as alumni. And usually the school newspaper would have a guy, would have a reporter that was there at the practice, you know, the sports writer for the school newspaper. And he would just tell me and I would just, you know, pretend like I'm an interested an alum and then saying that, hey, listen, how, how'd that practice go? Is, is Jones in today? Uh, is Jones going to be in on Saturday? And uh, he'll say, yeah, he looked good or uh, nah, he was sidelined the whole time. You know, obviously you never say, hey, I'm, I'm about to bet a lot of money on this stuff. 
No, you don't pose as a gambler. You just pose, and, and you know, I don't think anything I was doing was unethical. You know, I was just trying to get the information, and then you know, sure, would I have to tell a little bit of a white lie on on who I was? Yeah, but you know, I'm not hurting nobody. You know, it's all about getting that information and, and, and trying to get it before the market realizes it. You know, we specialize in that. You know, I have an information network that's, I believe, second to none. We get a lot of information everywhere. I'm like that fat bald guy on Game of Thrones that has these little birds all over the place. Um, the guy that has no dick. Uh, we're like that. Ray is in a unique position because he actually gets to see Spanky's bets come in. He knows that Spanky probably isn't guessing, but that's about all he knows. He's a real odd case because I have to think, what's he thinking right now? Is he just doing this for this reason? Is he doing it for that reason? He could be betting it for any reason. You know, uh, anything from the numbers about to move four points because he knows LeBron James isn't playing to, I want the market to fly this way so that I can blast the other side everywhere else. You know, he, he there's no telling what's on his mind when he makes a bet, which makes him kind of fun to handicap, if you will. You know, it's kind of fun to figure out what, what's going on there, you know. There were also times that Spanky had non-public information, but it was hard to bet big on rumors. You know, that whole NBA ref thing, I kind of caught wind of that towards the end of it, and um, and I didn't believe it. You know, I would hear rumors and shit around, you know what I mean? I was piped in and, you know, yeah, there's, a, there's an NBA ref, that, and I didn't know who the ref was. I knew nothing. I just knew the game. There's an NBA ref, and, you know, go bet this team. And I remember betting five dimes, and, you know... 5,000, I was just so risk-averse, I couldn't believe it. You know, looking back on it, I should have bet a lot more than $5,000, you know what I mean? But you just don't, you know what I mean? I was young, I was trying to build my bankroll, and, you know, you hear these things, and you just, whatever, you know, you don't believe it. You never believe it. And, and then, of course, when the news breaks years later, you're like, holy shit, that was real. And then you remember, damn, you know what I mean? I didn't take full advantage of something like that. And, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. But uh, that time, it really was... It was true, so it just, I didn't take advantage of, of opportunities sometimes that came across my plate. Not every edge requires a secret piece of information. Sometimes these things are just sitting out there, waiting to be discovered. And I noticed that they're offering prop bets on fast break points and points in the paint for NBA games, and that's something that's in the box score. And but they were they were pretty vanilla across the board, like they just had the same lines for just about every game. And I'm like, well, teams play differently. If you have a big man, you're going to have more points in the paint because they're going to be able to dominate that area. If you have a, a, a shorter team, you're going to have more fast break points because you're going to try to pick up the pace. And within five or six hours, I was able to quickly draft up a model of just comparing all the teams based on their abilities in fast breaks and their abilities in points in the paint. And I, in fact, I did it quick enough that I was able to actually bet some on that night's games. The, the max bet on this was $200 on each of those on points in the paint and fast break. And I made about $29,000 in two months before they finally just pulled the prop. Uh, and that was $200 a time. So you can imagine just how, how great I ran on those. But it, they, were just, they were just really poorly made lines. And uh, I was able to just kind of keep hammering them for $200 at a time. And uh, it added up fast. But we started with a really modest bankroll. So, you know, our main focus was just picking on anything that was super, super weak, all the derivative markets and whatnot. So the big money grab, I think we found at the time, this was, uh, I guess this was 2006, 2007, was um, baseball team totals. 
and uh, basically they were just all too high. And the uh, the home teams were even higher because at the time I don't think they were factoring that sometimes they didn't bat in the bottom of the ninth. At the time, I think they would just take a total of nine, and if the game was assuming the game was pick them, it would be four and a half flat, four and a half flat, and you could just you could just blind bet the board under basically and. I think all they were doing was just looking at a total and just firing in a number. They weren't using any databases or any actual data to come up with what these team totals actually should be. So that was one of the main things we picked on. There was a time in which, you know, the NFL quarters would would stay up right after, even after the coin toss. So, and and obviously the first and the third quarter were the big ones, right? Because if you knew who wins the coin toss, you know who defers, then whoever gets the ball first you know, that would be usually a good bet in the first quarter just because they probably are going to have, you know, just a higher number of possessions. And then, of course, the opposite team would be the bet in the third quarter. And then that lasted, you know, for a while. I, if I recall, probably years. And then Sportsbook wising up, wind up taking, you know, right before the coin toss, wind up taking the quarters off the board. But there was a time in which those, you know, the, you could you could bet these quarters after the coin toss It was a great edge. You know, we had a good earn to that. There are also situations where the thing to exploit is an intentional offer from the marketing department. Since Captain Jack built a lot of his bankroll through internet casino bonuses, he's always on the lookout for a promo that will turn the odds in his favor. Always have your eyes open. Always be looking around as to what's available, what what type of positive EV situation you can find. And in this case, I was watching the Super Bowl and it was halftime. And so I swung around in my chair and went back to all the different sports books and I start pulling up the lines and seeing what the halftime lines are. And I came across one sports book and in the corner, it said they were having a promotion for halftime in the online casino. And it was a leaderboard promotion, which means like you play slots and whoever accrues the most coin in uh, it gets to the top of the leaderboard and, and gets the, the top prize. But 100 places paid. And I thought, you know, oh, well, all right, uh, you know, maybe I can get 50 bucks out of this. And hey, 50 bucks is 50 bucks. So I went into the casino, pulled up a, a slot machine program there and and. You can set it to autoplay a few hands. So I set it to autoplay like 25 hands. And I went back to like looking at lines and other windows. And after, you know, a few minutes, I went back and checked. And yeah, I had lost like 20 bucks. But I went back to the leaderboard and I was in like eighth place. And we're now 10 minutes into this hour long promotion. And I'm in eighth place that quickly with like that that little play. So I went back and set it to play another 50 hands. And and, uh, I kind of kept an eye on it and went back to the leaderboard. And now I'm in first place. Uh, the other people that had competed so far hadn't even really stuck around to do much slot play. Uh, so then I was like, you know, what's first place pay? And it was $15,000 to first place. And this promotion only ran for like another 35 minutes. I ended up wagering, uh, I think it was about $8,800 on this slot machine. And that was enough to win first place, which was 15000 So in other words, I wagered 8800 I actually lost 1000 but then got 15000 in the promotion. One thing that becomes apparent talking to professional gamblers is that they treat it with the seriousness of a profession. So the first thing I do each day is uh, I'll run my various models for sports that I originate in. And uh, I, the sports I, I mainly focus in are NBA basketball, Major League Baseball. And so I will 
run my program, look at the lines. I'll try to find what the news is, what players are probable or could be inactive for a game. And uh, basically, I'll wait because the market tends to move at certain times. And it's related to when some of the other sharp bettors are getting into the market. I'm on the East Coast. That's a little bit of an edge when it comes to these markets because uh, there's a lot of markets that move on, on basically on West Coast time. And I don't want to throw my bets in too early because there's just not enough liquidity in the pool. It's going to uh, influence the market more than I want it to. So I'll often wait until I, I know the time that the markets are going to start to move. And then that's when I'll put my, my bets in uh, because I'll get more instant feedback in terms of if there is a syndicate out there that's opposing me or if there is a syndicate out there that's moving in my same direction. I'll get a better read on it. Uh, and then throughout the day, there's various parts where more information becomes available. Markets tend towards efficiency, and we get more and more news as the day goes on, so the lines get more efficient. So there are times when I have to then bail out of what I was already in because some new information about maybe a player or a situation becomes available. And then towards the end of the afternoon, I, I'm, I'm looking for other derivative plays, other like uh, prop bets or um, alternate lines or, uh, you know, quarters and halves uh, as a sort of like a, just a little seasoning on top. Uh, you, the limits aren't as big for those, but you can, you know, put a little extra on, on those and it's a good way to kind of um, lower the variance overall. And uh, then we get to game time. And typically, I don't watch the games uh, unless I'm going to do some sort of in-game betting. And uh, in-game betting is tough because you can only watch one game at a time. And, you know, that. so if I'm doing in-game, I, I'm typically just watching one game. But other than that, I'm just sort of, you know, watching the results roll in and seeing if I need to make any other adjustments at halftime or things like that. And, uh, you know, take the rest of the evening off. Being a pro sports better requires a lot of repetitive tasks, which makes it a perfect use case for automation. But the world is always changing, and these guys have been tweaking their use of technology over time. We have a betting team, and we have, you know, we have an office. We run a betting office. You know, the biggest thing was technology. You know, that, that's always been our, our forefront. We're trying to be on the forefront of, of, of technology on speed. Things have changed as the industry's changed. You know, there was a time in which, you know, when we'd want to place a bet, we'd be able to click a button and seven computers would, would make phone calls at the same time. And we would all try to be on, you know, we'd all have two or three calls each and trying to place the same bet. Um, phone betting was big back then because, you know, you couldn't get down big on, on online back then. You know, you could get a ten twenty thousand dollars $20,000 bet on the phone and online you could only get five hundred. So obviously you got to make the phone call. Now it's kind of like, you know, online you're getting everything down. You're getting, not everything, you're getting, you know, a higher limit and the phone operations now pretty much don't exist um there's still one spot till this day that we still call that give us a higher limit on the phone than they do online but that's it so yeah everything now you know what we developed is now is we have you know robots betting where you know at the touch of a button if you have a trader he'll be able to just send it in and then we'd be able to hit thousands of sports books all around the world the order could be sent to a guy in a basement in 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 malaysia uh, could be sent to a guy in Kenya, you know, you know, there's, it, it's vast, you know, I'm not trying to say that that's where we have guys now, but we've, we're, we've, uh, we've adapted and we've had guys all over the world help us get down and, and, and be part of that. So it's, it's, uh, everything's technology getting down as fast as possible. 
I started in Excel back in 2004. In fact, I still have some of those early models that I created in Excel in 2004. And I would always try to kind of find something better than Excel to use down the line. I remember I was using Perl for a while. I was using um, I was using other languages. I don't even remember what I was using. I was using other stats programs. And I kept coming back to Excel. And it wasn't until I would say in the last five, eh, four or five years that other tools out there have exceeded Excel. And now it is easier to scrape things with Python. It's easier to uh, run the, the regression analysis and whatnot with R. And now there's there's tools that are even easier than R. There's this tool Orange, uh, which is like almost like a WYSIWYG version of R. And it, it makes it so much easier. And and so my tech stack is is really whatever I can use. In terms of like my my tech stack, yeah, I, you know, I'm kind of bound to my office, but at the same time, I've started to use a lot more Google Drive because then I can be accessing that from anywhere. Uh, so I've kind of like built front ends onto Google Drive so that I can uh, Google Sheets so, so that I can, you know, if I'm on the road somewhere, I can still run my model or um, cloud computing is great these days. You know, I've been running some processes in the cloud uh, so that, you know, I don't have to be at home and doing something, uh, it can run automatically and shoot me a text message uh, with the results. And I've used that when I'm doing in-game betting to kind of keep up with it, even though I'm out for the evening or I'm, you know, traveling at the time. Uh, it's it's really amazing to be able to use cloud computing and these mobile tools, uh, whereas in the past, I would have been chained to my desk to do any of this stuff. When Ray and his partners went to work for Bookmaker, They knew that being able to compete on technology would be important. They also introduced an automatic line mover to make the odds less exploitable. I think the thing I was shocked the most with was when we walked into the building was just how far they were behind technology wise. And I think we did a lot to improve that right out the gate, you know, as far as better computers, better TVs, um, just saying, look, you need this, you need that. And then I think the biggest, I think the biggest thing we implemented was the um, the auto mover. At the time, they didn't have an auto move. I think Pinnacle at the time might have been the only shop that had an auto move. Um, and it's just essential for shops that are trying to take on the world, you know, because you you don't want to get hit multiple times by the, by the winners at the same number. So if you get a, to where one person makes a bet and the number moves, and the next person has the next price, and you businesses to the level that bookmakers is, it's tough to lose at that point, you know, but if if you take all your action at one price, then now you're gambling. We're going to pause there for now, but when we come back in part two, we're going to talk about the relationship between sharp bettors and bookmakers. We're also going to hear about the investigation that put Spanky in jail for the only time in his life. They didn't cuff me in front of my kids, which I thought was really, and I, I remember thanking the detective for that afterwards. Thanks so much for not cuffing me in front of my kids because my kids were young at the time. Um, it happened. It was 2012. So my, I had my, my kids were seven, five, three, and one. My five, three, and one, they didn't really. They, I, we just told them the alarm was broken and guys were here to fix it. They bought it. My seven year old was kind of like, hey, wait a minute. But he was cool. You know, he still was seven. So we were just like, nah, don't worry about it. You know, they helped me let my kids get ready for school. It was nice. They weren't jerks about it, and I, and I, and I, and I appreciate that because, you know, you can't blame the cops. The cops are there just doing their job, so I, I don't have anything against them. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Spanky, 
Captain Jack, and Ray Marino. Also special thanks to the people at bookmaker.eu for coordinating the interview with Ray. There are a number of resources that will be helpful if you want to understand this topic more fully, so I'll post links in the show notes. Spanky hosts an excellent podcast called Be Better Betters, where he talks exclusively to professional bettors and bookmakers. Captain Jack's YouTube channel also has a number of educational videos that would be helpful even for people whose goal is simply to lose less money at sports. As a footnote to this episode, Frank B., the guy with the craps table in his living room, appeared on Gambling with an Edge to talk about his dice control adventures. I'll have a link to that episode in the show notes.